Okay, so the topic of our conference this morning is divine providence. <clears throat> it's an extremely important topic. It's important in the spiritual life. It's important for how we understand bigger issues, much bigger issues in theology, uh, the economy of salvation, and the supernatural order. All of these notions are related in one way or another to divine providence. So we want to get clear on <clears throat> what, it, what we're talking about when we speak of divine providence because a lot of people in our contemporary context do not have it uh, spelled out for them very carefully and they don't have a notion of divine providence in their mind in a very uh, a robust way, we could say. So that's what we're going to discuss this morning is the providence of God. There's a couple of presuppositions that we have on the table in order to uh, continue to discuss it. Some things we have to presuppose. So number one, we're presupposing that God knows. That's an important presupposition. Aquinas doesn't just take it for granted. In his natural theology, he gives arguments for the claim that God knows, but we aren't going to rehearse those arguments here. Second, and more importantly, uh, we're presupposing that God knows himself. That's the second big presupposition that's on the table when we discuss divine providence. And it's important to consider that God knows himself for reasons that we'll get into. And also, we are in a way presupposing that God knows all. Okay, he knows everything. So at a certain point in our conversation, I suppose you could stop me and say, wait, but you're presupposing that God knows, or you're presupposing that God knows himself, or presupposing he knows everything. Yes, I'm just taking all that for granted up front, okay? And with those presuppositions on the table, we can then proceed to consider divine providence. What is it? Aquinas gives us, the best way in, the simplest way in, is to think of it in terms of an analogy. Aquinas gives an analogy between God and an artist, as an artist is to the artwork, so God is to the world. And this sets everything up or frames it in terms of one of those analogies, okay? That Michael mentioned yesterday, like, this is like this, but kind of, sort of, <laughs> like that. <laughs> But it's a good way to, to put everything in a sort of framework. So let's think about how an artist knows things uh, with respect to his art. If you think about it, like let's take a painter. The painter first has an understanding in his mind of what he wants to produce on the canvas. Okay? And then from out of that pre-understanding of what's to go on the canvas, the artist wills into, yeah, wills to produce the actual image on the canvas itself, okay? So, likewise, God has a pre-understanding of the world, which is in him from eternity, and from out of that pre-understanding of the world, he produces the world itself in its, in its goings and comings, okay? That's uh, the general analogy that sets the big the big picture for Aquinas. But it's, it's worth pausing on just one thing because when we consider the knowledge of God 
and the world, we don't want to get into the position of saying that God's knowledge depends on the world. He doesn't learn things from the world. He's not affected by the world. He doesn't, um, he's not changed by it in any way. So how does he, if he does know the world, how does he know the world? He knows the world by knowing himself. So God knows himself, just as the artist knows, as it were, what's in his mind. Okay? And it's by knowing himself that God knows what's going to come in the world, because he knows what he himself is going to produce or create okay? in things. That's very important, because even if the world did not exist or ceased to exist, God's knowledge wouldn't change. That's because all his knowledge is of himself, okay? first of all. And it's of things by virtue of being of himself. Okay, now what we want to do is try to spell out the analogy in more detail so we can get more, um, more points about divine providence and how Aquinas sees it as working. So for that, I'm going to take the artist analogy and modify it just a little bit and give an analogy with a foreman on a construction site. Okay. So let's take uh, this kind of setup. We have a foreman. And the foreman wants to produce what we might call an end product. And the end product would be, the let's say, a house. Okay, here's the house. Okay, that's the end product the foreman wants to produce. And there's one thing to consider in terms of this end product, which we could call its form, or the blueprint okay, of the house, or the specifications of the house, its shape, its, its floor plan, but also all the things that are gonna go into the house, the windows, the doors, the plumbing, the electricity, all that stuff. So there's like a, an image or a blueprint of the end. That's one thing to consider. Now, the foreman is also going to have things that he uses along the way. So on any typical construction site, at least in uh, our society, you've got subcontractors. And the way the subcontractors work, well, we have just different kinds of them, right? So you've got your cement guys. You got your uh, carpenters. I don't know what you call them. cement guys, <laughs> uh, electricians. You got your drywall hangers, drywall guys, etc. Okay. Now each of these subcontractors is going to carry out various acts. Okay. So what are the cement guys going to do? They're going to lay cement. Okay. They, the carpenters are going to uh, put up walls, okay? They're going to put up walls. The electricians are going to wire things, put in sockets, etc. okay? Now, each of these is carrying out an act that's proper to that particular uh, subcontractor. And each of these acts you could say is for the sake of a particular end. So 
So the cement guys have a particular, and that's to like, let's say, lay the foundation of the house. And then the, the putting up the walls, that action is for the sake of a particular, and that's like erecting the framework of the whole. And then the electricians have their particular ends, which is to supply electricity to the house uh, so that things can be lit up and used, etc. <clears throat> Obviously, the picture is going to be a lot more complicated when it comes to constructing a house, but um, you can get the point. Each of these has its particular ends. And all of these particular ends figure into or go towards composing or constituting what we can call the ultimate end. Now we can set the house in a new sort of framework as an ultimate end with respect to these particular ends. And the particular ends are actually part of or go towards constructing the ultimate end or overall end, okay? All right, well, <clears throat> I think, oh, one more point we want to make. Uh, let's do it this way. You can think of the foreman, on the one hand, the foreman's got in mind, first of all, the ultimate end. Okay, so Aristotle says, in practical matters, look first to the end. So the ultimate end is what the foreman has in mind first. So there is a kind of yeah, blueprint of the whole end, the ultimate end, here. But it's not only a blueprint of the ultimate end, there's going to be what? An understanding of the sequence of events that need to take place in order to get to this ultimate end, okay? So the, the foreman needs a, a plan for what we might call the process, not just the final product, but the process that brings it about, okay? So there's going to be a kind of understanding of the order of the means towards the end, which is what these are. The subcontractors, their acts and particular ends are in turn means towards the ultimate end. So not only does the foreman have a, a pre-understanding of the end product as like a fixed or static thing, but of the entire process of means and ends by which to get to it, okay? So there's the means and ends understanding as well. That, we could say, is a pre-understanding of the whole thing, process and product together. There's a pre-understanding of the whole. Okay? Now, I hope, it should be obvious, that you can see the analogy that we have set up. The foreman is like God, at least a little bit, okay? <laughs> and the subcontractors are like what we might call secondary causes, but we might be more specific here and say secondary agents. And they carry out Secondary agents carry out proper acts, proper operations, and those proper operations are for, yeah, particular ends. That's the same term here. And it's all for the sake of the ultimate end. Okay, so this is how Aquinas understands. This would be like the, his language and how it fits into a large scheme of things, okay? Otherwise, you pick up Aquinas and you have a particular end and primary agent, secondary agent. You, you might not know how, what all that means, but it's all part of like a, an orderly whole, okay? So, we can start to see if this construction site is something like what God is up to, then we're, what he's doing is he's constructing what we might call 
the world. Now we're going to have to qualify this in a minute, because you might say, well, the world is the ultimate end. But the world is not the ultimate end. It's on the way to, to some, a better end, as we'll see. We'll have to make some qualifications in a minute. So we can put the world somewhere in between here and here, okay? All right. We're now in a position to give a definition of divine providence, okay, in light of this analogy. So here's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you that it is, all right? If you want to write this down, here you go. Divine providence is God's pre-understanding. It's God's pre-understanding of reality as a whole. And the plan by which he directs all things to their ultimate end. Divine providence is God's pre-understanding of reality as a whole and the plan by which he directs all things to their ultimate end. So just as the foreman has a pre-understanding of the whole and directs the subcontractors and their acts to carry out their proper operations towards an ultimate end. He does that by virtue of his pre-understanding or in light of his pre-understanding. Likewise, God, by virtue of a pre-understanding of reality as a whole and in light of it, directs all the secondary agents that he creates. That's everything other than himself to carry out their proper acts for the sake of particular ends which serve to bring about the ultimate end, okay? That's divine providence in a nutshell. It's important to pause and, and, and sit with it for a moment. God pre-understands the order of reality as a whole. All things are figuring into this plan. So every sunrise that ever was, every sunset, it belongs to his plan. And every fish that ever swam in the sea, and the exact route it took through the sea, it belongs to his providence to know this. Every person who was ever born, every name, Every, every person ever took, where the person would be born, by whom they would be raised, in what ways, what, yeah, what choices they would make, what things would happen to them in their lives, all of it belonged to God's pre-understanding of all things. That's incredible. Well, we just stop and, and think about it. Every snowflake that ever fell and every shape ever taken by every snowflake. And they tell me that every snowflake has a different shape. It all belongs to the divine providence to know the path it traced through the sky, where it would land, and, and how it would relate to things around it. It's mind-boggling. Every raindrop, I mean, you just, you, you just keep going and going. Every, every ant that ever crawled and the route it took uh, as it crawled, Every ant hill, every ant colony, its exact specifications, all of it belonged to divine providence and was being 
And yeah, these secondary agents are carrying out his plan, okay? As uh, they're carrying out his plan in time, okay? The plan itself is eternal. So we could call it, sometimes divine providence is called the eternal designs. The eternal designs. The eternal designs of God. Now, how can, one question that comes up along the way, as we discuss divine providence, is how do we know whether God has providence or not? Okay? Do we know this by philosophical reason, or do we know it by divine revelation? One thing is pretty clear. We definitely know it by divine revelation. Okay? The scriptures affirm the reality of divine providence. You could even say that the Bible is just itself a tale of how God exercises divine providence over the world for the sake of a, of a good, okay? But could we make a kind of uh, philosophical, purely philosophical case for divine providence? There are some passages in Aquinas. Let me put it this way. It's a disputed question among Thomists, and there are passages in Aquinas that really strongly suggest that there are philosophical reasons for thinking that God exercises providence over all things. What would be some of them? One of them would be something like this. You consider the harmony of the world of nature. If we just look at the world of nature around us and consider the various creatures or secondary agents at work, we can see all of them carrying out their proper acts. At least we can pick up on this to some extent. So the the honeybees are going around doing their thing and they're gathering pollen and they're bringing it back to their hives and they're making their honey. The trees are doing their thing, uh, each, each of them doing its own way, but each of them are, yeah, turning carbon dioxide into oxygen and that produces oxygen and it helps all the other animals that breathe and, and so they're going about, the animals are able to go about do, and do their things. Uh, all of these various things in nature are working each towards their own proper ends, in particular acts, proper acts towards particular ends, they're all doing that, but somehow or another nature as a whole is harmonious. It's harmonious. And the harmony of nature is one of the things that, let's say, strongly suggests to the mind that there is a providential ordering of all of it, okay? The harmony of nature. That's quite important for us to, to stop and think about because Aquinas is in a position in the history of philosophy and of civilization where he thinks it's basically normal for people to ponder the world of nature and to be really struck by the order of nature and to be struck by the beauty of nature. Okay? In fact, he thinks that kind of contemplation where we are pondering the, the marvels of nature and rising up from the marvels of nature to be profoundly impressed by God as the orderer of all these things, he thinks that that is really just like an ordinary thing that human beings do. So much so that when we, in a minute I'm going to say something like, he thinks that's like the purpose of the order of the world, is to lead persons to contemplate God this way. I think we live in a time and in a social situation where the contemplation of nature and the marvels of nature and the harmony of nature is much less 
uh, prominent in our lives, let's just say. It's a much less prominent practice. And we're absorbed in, in a kind of techne world where the marvels of nature, just we don't even notice them, okay? Just on a regular basis. So the claim that like, that's the purpose of nature is to lead us to understanding the marvels of God, yeah, that doesn't strike us too much. Because we don't think of ourselves primarily as contemplatives of nature. But that's sort of how Aquinas thinks of, of human beings. What do human beings do? They look at the stars. They look at the, the waves of the ocean. They consider the marvels of the world around them. They're much more in touch with nature. Okay. Um, that's, that's like a, an initial sort of uh, explanation of divine providence. Now, what I want to do is give you several features of divine providence. Okay. And then we can go from those features of divine providence to further considerations about the ultimate end that God is working towards. And that will help us summarize a number of points. So here come a list of features of divine providence, if you want to write these down. First of all, divine providence is comprehensive. It's comprehensive. Everything that happens belongs in one way or another, and that's an important qualification, in one way or another. There's various ways. But everything that happens, everything that is, and everything that happens, belongs in one way or another to divine providence. There's nothing outside of God's plan, nothing outside of his pre-understanding. God's not surprised. Oh, I didn't expect that to happen. Uh, it's comprehensive. Second, it's particular. It extends to every particular secondary agent and every particular act of every secondary agent. Okay? It's not just with respect to the ordering of kinds. Okay? It's not an arrangement of pure forms like the uh, Platonic good. It's regarding particulars. Okay? So there are people who have held, if I understand correctly, that God exercises kind of an arrangement over the kinds of things, but not over particular acts that are being carried out. Okay? For Aquinas, it's particular. So it's not just that he arranges like a world of the forms and then the particulars fall where they do, wherever they may. Providence extends to the particulars. Okay, third. Divine providence is teleological. It's a plan of secondary agents working for particular ends by proper acts. So Aquinas takes all of Aristotle's teleology, an understanding of the world as composed of agents working for ends, particular ends, and he brings it under this notion of divine providence and sees providence as an arrangement of agents working for ends. Okay? So the whole thing is shot through with teleology. That's why when he discusses divine providence in book three of the Contra Gentiles, he first, over the course of many chapters, works out all these principles about agents and working for an end and means and ends and all kinds of those teleological principles. Then once he's worked through the teleolo uh, teleological principles and facts and features of the world, then he comes, okay, now we can talk about divine providence, okay? So it's teleological through and through. Number four, divine providence is 
wise. God is wise. Divine providence is, is wise. The book of wisdom says in chapter 7, verse 22, wisdom is the fashioner of all things. God is the fashioner of all things. In light of this providential plan for the world, it's a plan of wisdom. In other words, it, we can just say very broadly, it makes sense. It makes good sense. It makes supremely good sense. And it's, it's, a, it's a wisdom or an understanding that extends to everything. Whether it makes good sense or not is one of the great questions that call, that one of the great questions that makes people even question whether divine providence is real. What would be a sign of the wisdom of divine providence? The ecosystematic harmony of things around us. This would be a kind of sign of divine providence. Aristotle thinks that in nature, always or for the most part, things go well. Let's just put it that way. Or always or for the most part, things achieve their ends. Okay? So always or for the most part, apple trees make apples. Always or for the most part, the bees go and find their pollen and make their honey. Always or for the most part, things achieve their purposes. Okay? And all those purposes that they have with one another work together so that always or for the most part, things go well in nature. Let me give some examples of ecosystematic harmony that can kind of reveal the wisdom of divine providence. Years ago, when I was in St. Louis, I had the opportunity to go to the, uh, the zoo. And when I went to the zoo, I went to the insect house in the zoo. And they show you in the insect house, as you know, all these kind of bugs and insects, various kinds, crawling around and doing their thing. And they had this display. Uh, it was one of these things that they have in zoos, you know, where they try to intrigue the minds of, of children, and they say, what would the world be like if there were no insects? And you have this display, and you have to open the doors to see the answer. So I was intrigued, and my natural desire to understand was, was provoked. <laughs> and I opened the doors to see what the world would be like if there were no insects. And when I did that, they showed this picture of the entire city of St. Louis covered in six feet of sludge. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> and they explained that what insects do is they go around and they eat dust. They eat little tiny particles of things. And so the insects are always going around eating these particles. And if the insects were not, if there were no insects and they weren't going around eating these particles, the particles would basically all pile up and the world would just be one gigantic sludge pile. Okay? So I thought, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> Here you have these subcontract, God subcontractors basically, and they're going around carrying, what are they doing? They're eating particles. And that's their proper, that's their proper operation, or one of them. And that serves an extremely important but particular end in the overall and the overall wisdom of the world, okay? Now, if you can do that for insects, I imagine if we could do that for all kinds of things in nature. You know, you talk about ecosystems, you're talking about webs of interlocking causes such that if you remove even one, the whole, uh, the whole ecosystem is disrupted in some serious way. So 
Ecosystematic harmony all around us is a kind of sign uh, of the wisdom of divine. It's a sign of divine providence and of the wisdom of it. Okay, that it, it works well. That leads to a fifth feature of divine providence. Divine providence is loving. It's loving. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God works all things for the good of those who love him. He works all things for the good of those who love him. So this divine providence, as it uh, gives being to, or as God gives being under his providence, to these secondary agents who carry out their proper operations for the sake of their particular ends, it's all a plan of love. It's for the good of the things involved. Okay? We can say that in a general sort of way. Okay? And there's a last feature of divine providence. Number six. It's ordered to the glory of God. It's ordered to the glory of God. This is where we have to pause and... and draw some important distinctions because we're, we've come upon a topic that is now of extreme interest to the human mind when we talk about being ordered to the glory of God. What does that mean? What we're getting at is what's the ultimate end that divine providence is working towards? God is working towards an ultimate end by virtue of this plan or by virtue of this pre-understanding he has. What's the ultimate end? Now, do you realize what question we just asked? The question we just asked is, what's the point of the world? What's the point of the world? That's a huge question and an awesome question. Why did God create? Why did he create at all? So I'll give you the answer, and then I'm going to do is try to explain it. I'll give you Aquinas' answer, then try to explain it. What's the ultimate end of creation? Here we go. God created the world in order to manifest his attributes to created persons. God created the world to manifest his attributes to created persons. That's what we mean by uh, the glory of God. Okay? It's, so, it's that his attributes might become known and his greatness be praised. In other words, you could say it, you could do this. You could say the world is God showing off to us. Okay? The world is God showing off through the world. Let's try to think about this. How does this work? It's like, because Aquinas will say things like, God created the world for his own sake. He'll say things like that all over the place. And you're like, wait, that sounds, that doesn't sound right. That sounds like God is creating the world in order to, what, fill up some need he has or complete himself in some way or for some egotistical, uh, for some egotistical purpose. But that's not what Aquinas means when he says God created the world for his own sake. You have to think of it as something like this. Here's God, and he creates the world. And human beings are in the world. 
And we are one of those particular agents, one of those secondary agents, who have a proper operation. And our proper operation is for the sake of a particular end. Okay? But what is our proper operation? Our proper operation is to, first, we could say, contemplate the world itself. So we could call this, yeah, we'll say contemplate. To contemplate the world itself. And this world, let's remember, is an order. It has that ecosystematic harmony to it. And the things in the world have this order, each carrying out its own proper operation for the sake of its own particular end, and figuring into this whole, which is a harmony. Okay? So one thing, the first thing we do, like, like starting from our point of view, the first thing we do is contemplate the world. But by contemplating the world, what we can do is rise from the world to see or behold, at least to some extent, we could say catch a glimpse of God's attributes. Which, in other words, means catch a glimpse of him. Not that we see his essence. But we somehow, that's why I use the expression catch a glimpse, right? We catch a glimpse of his attributes somehow. But that is by pondering the world and the ecosystematic harmony of the world. And from that same act, we rise up to him. Okay, so now let's ask the question, what's the point of the world? If we describe it from our point of view, we could say the point of the world is to contemplate God. Okay? The point of the world is to contemplate God. And that would not be a false thing to say, but that's describing it from our point of view. Okay? What would be another way to think about that? Here's how we think about it. If we take um, the very act of contemplation itself, you have the person, you have the act of contemplating, and then you have the object of that contemplation, which is God. If you start from our point of view, you could say, yeah, the point of view of the world, uh, the point of view of the world is for us to contemplate God. But when we break it up like this and analyze it, we realize that in the, within the act of contemplation, one of these things is prior and one of them is posterior. The act of contemplating is actually posterior to the object of contemplation, which is God himself. So it's really the object of contemplation God himself, who's prior. See? So absolutely speaking, God himself is the point of the world. And that's what Aquinas means when he says, God created the world for his own sake. Okay? He created the world in order to be the object of contemplation for creatures. Because there's nothing better for creatures than to behold him, even a little bit, even if it means catching a glimpse. Okay? Now, what I've been doing here in this presentation is spelling this out in terms of what we call the natural order alone. Okay? So just when we consider the natural order of things, before we consider Christ, grace, salvation, eternal life, 
or anything of the supernatural order, just in the natural order alone. We already see that God creates the world. The world itself has a final cause. The, world, the final cause of the world is to manifest to creatures, the very God who created them, so that, uh, created persons, I should say, the purpose of the world is to manifest God to created persons, so that the created persons themselves might catch a glimpse of God. God himself being the ultimate reason within this order, the order of contemplation itself. Okay? Now, uh, that's all within the natural order. So there's a strand within Aquinas, and you can find it, hints of it here and there, where just in the natural order alone, it's like the contemplation of God through the harmony of the world, that's like the reason for the world. That's the purpose of the world. But once we accept divine revelation and allow divine revelation to inform our understanding, we can say all the same things. Only now, what we understand is not only God creating a world, but also saving the world. Entering into that world by the incarnation and going to work through the Paschal mystery to save the world that he created. And when we contemplate the world, we contemplate not only the natural order and the ecosystematic harmony and the attributes of God that, it, that that harmony discloses, but we can also ponder the marvels of his saving economy, which is also part of his providential plan, but we would not know that except for divine revelation. And then when we contemplate the marvels of his saving economy, we can rise up to an even greater glimpse of him, not only a glimpse of his attributes, like his, gener his goodness, his wisdom, his, his, lo his love, his power, but we can contemplate the greatness of his inner life in the Trinity and his saving plan in the incarnation and his generosity and merciful love as the incarnate word dies for us on the cross and the greatness of, our, of the gift that's been given to us in the resurrection life that we can live in Christ as the church. Or as St. Paul says in the letter to the Ephesians, we can live to the praise of his glory. And that glory consists not only of the beautiful ecosystematic harmony of the world, but the beautiful plan to save the world that God created. Okay? So once we bring in divine revelation, we realize that divine providence extends not only to the natural order of things, but to the supernatural order, the saving economy of all things. Okay? All right. That is a fast presentation of divine providence.